Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Good morning, everybody. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air with my podcast co-hosts, Dominique, Simone Levine. Good morning, Dominique. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And Kayla Solomon. Good morning, Kayla. Morning, Laurie. Good morning, Dominique. So, Dominique, why don't you get us started with today's topic? This morning, we were going to talk some about the multiple pathways to recovery, um, which is this growing interest in widening the idea of your loved one needs treatment, treatment is the only answer to treatment and recovery activities, things that are swaying your loved one towards health and wellness, those baby steps perhaps. Maybe it's not formal treatment, maybe it's a group soccer team or something that provides that relaxation from anxiety that a group a sport might might offer, right? So it's all kinds of ideas. And Kayla wants us to first make sure we define what recovery is before we launch into how to address those sorts of things that lead to recovery. And, and so it, I think it's important for us to really look at what it means, what recovery actually means. And just a little caveat for everybody, everything that we talk about, the definitions change all the time. As time goes on and there's more research done and more people really digging in and looking at this, the definitions change. So originally I come from the land where you looked at abstinence versus recovery and abstinence is literally not using the substance. It is complete lack of use. And I always define recovery as basically that's the action to fill in that space inside of you. So if, if you're using to calm yourself down, you're finding tools to calm down. If you need spirituality, if it's about connection, you know, this is what treatment is, is how do you heal so that you're not trying to feed that hole that you feel inside of yourself. And the irony is that what abstinence does is takes the tool away that you were using to fill in the hole without filling it in with something more helpful and healthy, you just have emptiness. And that is basically a path to actually going back to what you used to do. But what's interesting is I was listening to Dr. Carl Eric Fisher's podcast the other day, which is called Flourishing After Addiction. And he was interviewing, he was interviewing Katie Wickowitz, I think is her name. She's a researcher who is actually researching what recovery is. And so the spectrum has changed. This is great information for me. I think I know what I'm talking about and then it changes. And what they're talking about is recovery defined by function, healing, change and growth. So that that's really what recovery is. So it's interesting because in the land that I come from, it's about not using anything. You don't use your substance and then you're working on these things. But what, what she is finding is that there are people who can use in a different way and be able to accomplish those skills and those goals, which is interesting. This is the shift for all of us. 
And, and it actually allows for more people to engage in healing if you change this all or nothing piece. So I found that very helpful that it, there's a wider range of how people could be in recovery and could be healing. And it's not just about them stopping completely. Now, not everybody is capable of using their drugs or alcohol or whatever their the thing that they're abusing and be able to take care of themselves. But there is a population of people that can use and function. So that's what we're looking at here. So let me just kind of expand on what I think both Dominique and Kayla, you're saying what we're doing and what we're talking about today is expanding on uh, the definition of actually two things. I would say expanding on the definition of what recovery is. In the past, it was always sobriety or abstinence from all substances. And now it is really kind of expanded. And I'm hoping I could I can just read the definition of recovery from SAMHSA, because I always kind of fall back to this definition. I love it. Just say what SAMHSA is. You, you got me there. What is it? It's substance abuse, mental health. Substance abuse, mental health services administration. Their definition. And by the way, they call it a working definition. So just kind of piggybacking on what Kayla was saying, that it's evolving over time. It's not this stagnant, written in stone kind of definition, but their definition says that recovery is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. And I think it's, it's such a huge statement because, because it isn't just that definition says it, it isn't just not using substances. It's finding a way to improve your health and wellness, whether you're using substances or not, and living a self-directed life that helps you reach your full potential. Now, the second half of this, and I think Dominique really hit on it, and tell me if I'm wrong, both of you ladies, but Dominique is also saying that Maybe out of this definition, this this working definition of recovery, treatment, the, the definition of treatment can be expanded to include all pathways to recovery. And this is a really, really important issue, I think, especially for families, uh, for moms and dads of whether it's youth, young adults or adult children but expanding on the definition of what treatment is and including recovery activities as a part of like a part of their recovery and a part of their level of treatment. Absolutely, Lori. And I think what's interesting is several fold is going from this idea that you don't have to be abstinent to start working on yourself, which is a long held belief from people in long-term recovery. A lot of ways we recovered had that message. The, the harm reduction movement in this country that's come against the abstinence movement and said, you know, we have to start letting people feel like they can help, they can get wellness and, and health despite use. We have to protect them from the more dangerous parts of their use. We have to try and reduce their use. And what Kraft says, which is by helping people just take a look at perhaps reducing use, you actually create the precondition 
for perhaps abstinence. And so the, this old movement, including what I just finished with, is a little aging, let's call it, because everything is still directed to you eventually stopping all use, whether it's craft or anything that came before it. But the shift from what Kayla is saying from that researcher that Carl interviewed is that there can be all this growth, there can be recovery, and there can be continued use. And so that's the message change that we're starting to get. And that's not just from what these folks are saying, but I'm seeing it in the popular literature as well. So we're really standing on its head, this idea of recovery and what it means. And I think providing people a whole lot more options for how they view getting what help for what, when, and for the family to also realize that, you know, he won't go to treatment, but, you know, he, he's playing soccer three times a week. It's the start of what decreases his anxiety that reduces the use for that period that he's playing soccer. It's the kind of craft appreciation, if you will, of that lowering the use, but taken a little bit further. You know, I, I love this idea of recovery activities. I also think that when we talk about things like replacing, using, or not replacing, using, but replacing times of anxiety with or encouraging during times of stress and anxiety to go and do these other activities that kind of help, right, that support or even just distract you from your particular thoughts, like going out and playing soccer, or maybe going and learning to play the guitar, or, you know, all these other activities. Those I think are these, they're like very general, they're very big. And what I want to, I want to let our listeners know is that you can actually narrow it down. You can start off with small moments of time of distraction. And so what I mean by that is, These recovery activities can be as small as, hey, I'm running down to Cumberland Farms to get myself a cup of coffee. Would you like to come and join me for a cup of coffee? It doesn't have to be, would you like to go away to camp, go to skateboarding camp for, you know, eight weeks in the summertime? It literally is, hey, I'm cooking dinner right now and you're really good at cooking those potatoes. Would you mind getting those potatoes and you you do that, I'll do this, and then we'll sit down and have dinner together. It's really small little baby steps. Start with those small little baby steps to build up to bigger activities, or I don't want to say bigger activities, but more intense activities, because it can be very overwhelming. Does that make sense? It can be very overwhelming if you're encouraging someone Why don't you go away to skateboarding camp for six weeks, right? No. And pull me away from from my comfort versus, hey, let's just go get a cup of coffee together. Let's just go for a walk and walk the dog. And I don't know, Kayla, you're looking at me confused. Well, I, I, I feel like what we're all talking about here is normalizing things in a different way. And we talk so frequently about the shame and stigma of abusing substances and using substances and addiction. And And what we're talking about today is normalizing things. And so I think that we don't even know what that means, because if you have a functional life, you don't think about it. We do a lot of the things unconsciously. And I love the parallel process of looking at 
being a loved one, looking at being a family member and seeing the exact same process for ourselves that we're asking for our loved ones. And that's the normalizing piece of it. So we're talking about anxiety. What's the biggest issue that we do in the groups and, and when people are on our site, it's anxiety. So what do you do with anxiety? What tools do you have? What are the things that you're gonna to do to distract or focus in on something else or change your thinking or do something productive or find meaning? That's what we're, we're all doing on a daily basis, but we don't know it. And that's the new paradigm for me. It's not new, but I, I just remember when I was working with, I used to work with a lot of young people who are on probation and people, they thought I was gonna say, you need to stop using blah, blah, blah. I never did that because it's the most alienating thing I could do as a clinician. But the first question I would ask is, what gives your life meaning? What do you like to do? What, what matters to you? And that's often the missing piece for folks is that either they don't know or they think that it's unattainable. So if we do that for ourselves, that's recovery. Recovery is finding meaning because meaning actually fills up that void, fills up that hole, fills up the trauma place and allows you to feel more connected with yourself, with your soul and the world. And so I'm not saying that if you are a loved one, that that's the goal for you with your loved one. But what it's about is it's about you knowing that it's not just them stopping the behavior. It's about there's this bigger, more positive way to look at this. And that's the connection piece. Not, oh, you're using, I'm not talking to you right now. I also think what Kraft is trying to do is move you away from focusing on the fact that they're, they are using, you know, we're so focused on what they're not doing. He's not getting out of bed and getting a job. She's not right. She's not stopping her use. In fact, it's increasing. So we focus, we focus on that. And Kraft is actually asking us to move over here, focus on what they are doing, which is exactly what recovery is. It's focus focusing on your strengths, focus on the person's strengths and start to encourage those. Because if you focus on the negative, you're in a way accidentally focused on those things and you're pointing them out on a daily basis, right? So like when I talk about going and getting a cup of coffee at Cumberland Farms, you're not going to get in the car and start talking about their problems or solve something or it is literally just about spending time and taking some time away from maybe being in the house and just having ruminating thoughts. And the more that the family member can get away from interacting with their loved one based on the negative and more based on their person or the individual strengths, the more you're encouraging them to reach their full potential. And what you said, Kayla, it just brought back something that happened with my son. And this was actually long before, well, maybe not long before, maybe at the beginning of his journey with substance use disorder, just before things really got really bad. He was seeing a therapist and the therapist asked him, and he was still like, I would say a junior, senior in high school. And the therapist asked him, where do you see yourself in five years? And are you on the path? Are you on the path to getting there? And I know it sounds crazy. 
And he wasn't. And he didn't head down that path right then in that moment. But he talked to me about that therapist asking him that question. And I could see the way he spoke about it. He was thinking. He was thinking about it. And later on, when he did come home and, you know, I mean, we were in the throes of active use and things were really, really bad. And I would I would bring it back. Sometimes I would bring it back to that particular question that that therapist asked him. And I would put it on a smaller scale and ask him like, well, what would you like to do in say by six months? Is there anything that you have that you are interested in? And I would ask him those questions. And then I would ask him, so, you know, what are your barriers and drop it? Like literally walk away and, oh, you know, have you, whatever it was, but I would drop it and leave it there and let him just think. And I saw, I saw he was thinking kind of like what Dominique was saying earlier, this idea that people are using and they're not thinking, or they, they don't have the capacity to start working on recovery is so false. It's so false. He was doing both. He was using And he was also working on his recovery. He was trying to figure it out. He just wasn't in a spot where I thought he should be, but I had to let it go. It's very interesting because from an addiction standpoint, you know, the big got to start recovery line is really clear in the sand. We've been taught that, you know, we have to get into recovery. We have to start recovery. And really jumping off of what you were saying Lori, the idea of these little tiny moments that as a family member, you can sort of redirect them to a cup of coffee or to making the potatoes, you know, it's like, you know, one of the fundamental things that is being taught to folks with addictions is this very simple little tool called surfing the urge. If you've ever tried quitting cigarettes, for instance, your urge passes whether you have one or not. So if you can get past the urge, your urge will stop. And so this extra little tiny moment right there of surfing the urge of coping instead of picking up is so critical in the development of a willingness to do more like that. And what you're saying, Lori, is the family member can interrupt, can create a moment during an urge that distracts them and redirects them. And I can tell you that happens. That happens a lot in the lives of people with active addiction. Something happens and, oh, okay, sure, fine. I'll go have coffee and all coffee. And all of a sudden, I can't remember why I was going through the drawers. You know, I, yeah, I still want to use, but I can wait till tomorrow. That's a really important model for all of the healing aspects of this, because as we know, we're dealing with mental health issues as well with our loved ones and ourselves. And it's the exact same thing for anxiety. It's the exact same thing for chronic pain. It's the exact same thing for depression. What happens is it comes in waves. The big pain and the big disruption comes in waves. And we often talk about riding that. So, you know, that's what a panic attack, a panic attack is a big wave. And if you don't feed it by getting worried or anxious that you're having a panic attack, it actually passes. But a panic attack is a great example because if you actually get anxious that you're having a panic attack, it becomes a thousand times worse. So if you just say, oh, I'm having a panic attack and then have the tools to be able to back yourself down from there, 
then it's a panic attack, but you are able to manage it. And distraction is a big piece. Using other tools, redirecting is really important. And I also, I think that what we're talking about here is that, oh, this is what I wanted to say. When you were talking, Laurie, I was thinking, because it's snowing today, just full disclosure. You know, if you're listening to this in the summer, there's beautiful snow outside my window. I believe in the the farming version of, of getting help. Okay, I think that what happens is it is all about planting seeds. Winter is a perfect example. There are tons of seeds under the ground right now doing lots and lots of work to stay alive and to do the part of the process that they're in and they're waiting. It's not obvious, we can't see it. We have no idea what's going on underneath, but there's a lot of action going on under the ground right now. And the more seeds we plant, the more opportunity that takes place when it's time. And I think that's the key, when it's time. And what I heard you say, Lori, is that 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 therapist planted a seed. And I love the technique that you described, which is you ask a very compelling question and then you walk away, okay? Because it is not about having that discussion with the person, it's about planting that question as a seed. I I just wanted him to think, that's all I wanted. And also I loved, I too love the farming idea and planting seeds. And I also recognize that I have the ability to maybe add a little bit of fertilizer in there or add a little bit of water, you know, when I start to see, you know, the bud breaking through the ground or whatever to be able to fertilize. I know I'm not in charge of that growth and I know I can't pick what seeds are going to are going to sprout. I don't have any control over that. But what I do have is the ability to kind of here, I'll add a little bit of fertilizer to that. I'll nourish it a little bit and then I'll launch you so you can start nourishing, nourishing this part of yourself as well. And here, take it away. It's all yours. I think it's interesting too that, you know, what you both talk about is ask them what gives them meaning and ask them about a plan. You know, what would a five year plan look like if you could have anything? And I got to tell you, both those questions are so out of, line, out of line for someone who's actively using because we're only thinking 24 hours into the future. That's been it for a very long time. And meaning, I don't even know the meaning of the word meaning. So as an active person, you really do have to give them time and fertilize and water that idea, repeat it, maybe point out what is meaningful to you. I mean, you have to teach them what meaning means. You have to show them that you can think a couple days more than just the next 24 hours. So the idea of shortening the, the question to six months or one month or two months is perhaps the better way to go when our thinking in active addiction has been so impulsive and quick and probably limited to a day or two, which we know is as long as we can hope somebody kind of hangs in there with us if we want them to get some help. So it's, it's a changeable landscape and you got just a little bit of time and it's nice to get people thinking about the bigger picture. I love, I love these open idea. The one I like the most too is, well, most families I work with, they, they have people that don't talk much. You're trying to get information from them. And so the, the, the reflective listening that we teach, the mirroring we teach on the site is very, very useful. But if you run out of anything in your head, you just say, help me to understand. Yeah. And I always say, well, tell me about that. 
Yeah. Tell me more. I love to say, like, what are your thoughts? Because I want it to be theirs. But I, I have I have disqualifiers that I like to throw in because it makes me it's more opening. So I'll say I often say, well, I heard this thing on a podcast and I'm just wondering what you think about it, because I like to share what I'm learning. But what I have learned from my 17 year old is she has the attention span of a gnat. So I have one sentence that I have I get to throw out. And so there's this little game that I play. So I throw out a sentence and I'm like, oh, what do you think about this? And then it's exactly what Lori said. I don't say anything else if she just says, I don't know. And I walk away. But what I find with her is that she hears me. But for some reason, she's not allowed to respond in the affirmative in real time. So she'll come around, you know, and say something that I said. And I'm like, oh, she heard me. But it's always shocking to me. So you're not looking at clues of, oh, is the person listening and responding in the moment? That's what the seed is that you throw it out. And and not, like I said, I'll say, well, this might be crazy or I don't know what, about this or, you know, I have this thought, but you're not interested. Those are my disclaimers. Throw it out there and then I walk away. Right. Because it's like these little seeded hooks where I'm going to hook you in, but I'm not going to do it in an aggressive and gigantic way. And the other thing that I think is really important that we're talking about is we are talking about people with limited attention spans and they don't necessarily speak the same language that we speak. So we need to be brief and pretty concise in what we're saying and not pushy about it because this is our intention and it is not necessarily their intention. What I love about craft is it's not about what we want and our intention and our brilliant minds trying to help somebody. It's about trusting the process. And as Lori said, and I love this word is self-directed. They have to be self-directed or nothing is going to come of this. Nothing. And that's what I think all of this does. When you just throw a statement out and then ask their thoughts on it, you're basically saying, I want you to direct it. I want to know what your thoughts are. What are your solutions? It really hasn't got anything to do with me as much as I want it to. And as much as it's incredibly difficult for me not to try and control this situation. But actually, now looking back on things, now I ultimately believe that it is much better if my loved one is the one in control of their own destiny. That's really the goal. Isn't that the goal? It's an important goal. I think that um, we started with the multiple pathways to recovery and, and that's where we end up saying, you know, there's nothing harmful in coming up with that recovery list, that treatment list early and thinking about it. What does my loved one like to do? What did they like to do? What seems to help them burn some steam off? You can encourage and find options. So I'm, I'm writing our landing page and I'm like, I want to be in charge of options and strategies. And we're going to let Lori be the communications person. And Kayla is our expert on addictions and, and relationships and, and craft and 30 years of experience. So I feel like We've got it. We have some deep knowledge at this point as to what we can do here with craft. It, it, so far, I've not reached the, the end of it. I still see more points, more effort, and more success And as we go deeper into the topic. Well, and I, I also think that this is a work in progress. My lesson from all of this work is that everything is evolving and changing. 
And I think that's the answer here is that if we look at what recovery is actually about, which is what we're talking about today, it's evolution. Okay, so somebody starts in one place and the hope, the dream, the wish is that they end in a different place. And we don't know what that place is, but hopefully it involves growth and change and finding meaning or finding a way to be in the world that allows you to feel a sense of ease and peace at times. And also that you feel good about yourself. And we don't know what that looks like because it's different for each of us. So the message for today is respect people's process, plant seeds when you can, and be interested in what their process and their evolution and their recovery looks like without it being defined by you. It has to be self-defined or it actually has no meaning. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Kayla. Thank you, Dominique. This was a wonderful conversation as usual. And I look forward to talking with you again next week on Coming Up for Air. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.